Good morning. Welcome to Great Oaks. Uh, this, just before I get into the message this morning, just one last uh, fair warning. If you're a parent and you have an elementary age or middle schooler uh, in here, and hopefully you received this at the door to make you aware of what we're talking about today, uh, just want to offer an opportunity as I make my opening comments. Uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go talk to somebody in the back, one of the sound guys, uh, somebody else. And uh, we have children's ministry for birth through fifth grade every Sunday over here. It's an incredible program. And then uh, for this Sunday in particular, we're offering a middle school worship service uh, over here in the youth room uh, for anybody in middle school who uh, may feel like their student is not prepared yet for this, this topic uh, that we're going to talk about. And those of you who don't have kids, you're like, what are we talking about? What's going on? Before I begin, though, um, I want to just have a moment of silence, if you would. Um, I had a, a very near and dear friend of mine uh, that passed away last night. Um, it was my beard. Um, <laughs> It was about time, honestly. It was getting a little long. Um, I'm sorry, Travis. I'm sorry, Brett. I've, I've, I've left the brotherhood. Um, but I'm coming back. The, the good thing about beards are they're a renewable resource. And, uh, you know, it's, it will come back eventually. may not be as big and bushy as I'd, I'd want it to be, but uh, you, a man can only take seven months of glares from his wife uh, before he caves. Although last night I came upstairs and uh, my son uh, yelled, Stranger danger! Uh, when I walked upstairs, my daughter just about wept. Uh, she loved the beard. Um, and my wife was looking at me like a giddy schoolgirl who has a crush on a guy. And I'm like, wow, put the kids to bed. Let's go. <laughs> and if I've offended you by that comment, get ready. <laughs> it only gets better from here. So uh, last week, uh, Pastor Dan started a two-part sermon series on the Bible. And uh, he talked about uh, just how important Scripture is to us as followers of Christ and, and how we need to uh, center our lives around that. Uh, today, it's the second part of that, and I've entitled it, When Worlds Collide. Uh, meaning, what do we do when our biblical worldview collides with a cultural worldview? And to make sure we're on the same page with terminology, I want to make sure we understand the word uh, worldview. And so uh, this is a working definition for us today. The framework of ideas and beliefs through which an individual, group, or culture watches and interprets the world and interacts with it. In other words, it is how we, as we see things happen around us in the world, and how we interpret those, how we, how we react to, to those things, what our perspective is. Uh, for those who are followers of Christ, we're called to have a, a biblical worldview, or uh, as Freddie uh, challenged me last week, a Christian worldview, meaning view the world through Christ, which I like that clarification as well. Uh, but it simply means that a biblical worldview is the process of, of interpreting and interacting with the world uh, through the teachings of the Scripture and particularly the life of Jesus. And so we look at the world and we interpret it based on, on what we see in there. Dan shared last week, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, and he says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We live in a world where it is increasingly difficult to have and profess a biblical worldview, right? Uh, to have a position that, that counteracts what we experience in culture around us. We live in a, a pluralistic culture where all roads lead to God, and you can believe whatever you want to believe, and it doesn't matter. We live in a, a culturally relativist, relativistic and a postmodern, nearing post-Christian world where everybody's allowed to have their own opinion and own belief, and don't you dare tell anybody they're wrong, Right? 
I mean, wow, try and do that in our world today, and that's that just inviting uh, chaos into your life when you oppose somebody. Uh, we, we read in 2 Timothy, if you continue on there, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, verse chapter 4, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And maybe uh, we need to underline that phrase with great patience and careful instruction. Uh, For the time will come, Paul says, when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. We live in a world where even as followers of Christ, we fall prey to this idea of of smorgasbord Christianity, uh, where we pick and choose uh, parts of the Bible and parts of the life of Jesus that we really like and we're, we're really comfortable with, and we embrace that as our whole doctrine, kind of ignoring or turning aside those parts that are awkward or uncomfortable. But the reality is, is the Bible is, is replete with scriptures that, that challenge this idea of, of, a, of a comfortable Christianity. Uh, we read in the Bible that we're to die to self, to put the needs of others before our own, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Uh, we're challenged to, to leave our churches and become ambassadors of Christ in a, a world that is uh, enti- becoming more and more opposed to Christianity. Uh, we're called to, to bring the shalom peace of Christ into the chaos of the world. Uh, we've been talking on Sunday nights with our high schoolers about uh, this idea of being missional and incarnational. And uh, what does it look like for the church to gather together on Sunday morning to be strengthened and energized and renewed and then sent back out into the world to be ambassadors of Christ? And we're, we're helping them understand maybe there's some specific areas of this world where uh, those students are being called to, to be missional and incarnational. But if we're honest, the church has an image problem, doesn't it? The church doesn't exactly have the the best uh, image in our world. You see, most non-Christians, they don't have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with his followers. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi said it possibly the best. He says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. In our world today, the church is not viewed in a very positive light by many people. In fact, most studies say that non-Christians look at the church and they determine it, they evaluate it based on two things that, or they say that we're two things. We're judgmental and we're homophobic. That's the prevailing view of modern American church, is that we're judgmental of other people and that we're homophobic. And yet, Jesus says that we're supposed to be known for our love. That's the prevailing mark of Christianity in our world. That's what it should be. And it's not what we're known for, though. We're not known oftentimes for love and grace and compassion, which are at the heart of the gospel. And and yes, I get it. Sin is sin. And and sin is at the heart of the gospel as well. And, And Jesus calls us to recognize the sin in our own lives to repent of that sin, to turn away. And so we can't throw sin out the window. We can't, we can't say that sin is irrelevant because it's at the core of the gospel message as well. Otherwise, we have no need for a savior if we could save ourselves. And so we can't throw out sin, but the church is really good at pointing out sin 
in people's lives and not talking as much or as passionately about love and grace. In fact, the American church has two pet sins that we're known for, that we call out all the time, that we protest, abortion and homosexuality. Those are the two primary sins that most people outside the church, when they look at the church, they say, wow, you're really vocal against abortion and homosexuality. You know, I've spoken to to several very strong Christian individuals this last couple weeks on this issue of homosexuality. And it is amazing to me the vehemence and the passion and the anger that exists within Christian Christians over this issue of homosexuality. It's this, this prevailing passion that it is the worst sin that the church could ever have inside its doors. And yet I would stand here today and say that more damage has been done to the American church today through divorce, through adultery, through pornography, through premarital sex, through gluttony, through greed, than than homosexuality. I think more damage is done by those other sins than what homosexuality has done to us as a church today. And yet we don't talk about those sins very often. Or if we do, it's in a very sanitized and, and impassionate way. We're like, oh yeah, I struggle with pornography. Or yeah, you know, I was divorced and I know the Bible doesn't want me to get divorced. And I, I know, you know, I drink a little too much on the weekends. But, you know, Jesus forgives me. He understands. But whoa, you're gay? <sighs> That's bad. We, we create this hierarchy of sin where we rank one sin higher than another. You see, most statistics today uh, say that roughly 4% of Americans identify as gay, lesbian, or transgender. And yet, over 50% of Christian couples will get divorced. Which has done more damage to the church? You see, we've entered into this this culture war against homosexuality, and I hate to tell you this, but it's not a war that we're going to win. It's not a war that we were ever meant to enter. We weren't meant to, to enter into this chaos and this, this world of, of politics and culture and trying to change all that. I'm not saying that, that we don't maintain our convictions. I'm not saying we back away from what we believe. But I think the moment we entered the culture war, we lost. As soon as we made it something other than being ambassadors of Jesus to people who are hurting and confused and, and struggling in life, whether homosexuality or any other issue. I liked how one author put it uh, recently on this issue of homosexuality. She said, you know, it's, it's telling that as Christians, our right to refuse service to a gay couple over and be overwhelms and exceeds our compulsion to serve them. That was challenging to read. So what do we do when worlds collide? How, how, do, we, how do we begin to change the image of the church without compromising the gospel? How do we proclaim our, our convictions while also remaining compassionate towards those who would disagree with us in our convictions? I like what Rick Warren said. I don't know if it's original with him or if he got it from somebody else, but um, I like what he said about this. He said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And this is really the heart of my message today. My my message is not primarily about homosexuality. 
I, I could have easily just as picked uh, other topics such as the existence of hell. That's, that's in debate even in the church today uh, between different uh, church leaders. Uh, that's the big struggle that my mom has. Uh, she can't believe in a God who would send anybody to hell. So I could have just as easily chosen that topic today. It could be about Jesus being the only way to heaven or, or capital punishment or military conflicts between governments or stem cell research. Any one of those could have been the backdrop for my, my message today. But I chose homosexuality because it's very prevalent in our world. And it's not talked about in our churches very often. And so I wanted to, to take the risk uh, to take the challenge to put it out there and have this message on this whole gays versus Christian culture war that seems to exist out there. Uh, we all know this is mainstream, right? I mean, Chick-fil-A. Uh, when the president of Chick-fil-A came out and uh, had his views on homosexuality, uh, if you were a good Christian, what'd you do? You went to Chick-fil-A and bought chicken. That's how you took your stance against homosexuality, was you bought a chicken sandwich. Yay, and wow, Okay. Phil Robertson, right? I had the beard last night. I mourned the loss of it. It wasn't a Duck Dynasty thing, but that got brought up all the time. But I loved what one author said. He goes, and it was a gay author. He said, seriously, you asked a 67-year-old Christian man from the backwoods of Louisiana what his view on homosexuality was, and you're shocked at his response? Seriously? Uh, Jason Collins, the first openly gay NBA player, Plays for the Brooklyn Nets now. Michael Sam, who a Mizzou football player, came out as gay. Uh, it's entered into the draft, uh, the NFL draft. Uh, we, we talk about Arizona and, and Kansas uh, and the bills that uh, were in legislature there for a while. And I'm not a political person, so I don't know how all that played out. But uh, we can talk about Modern Family. It's on our TV shows. It's in our kids' shows, Good Luck Charlie, and uh, I didn't see this episode, but my wife told me about it, that uh, they were, they were preview, or, uh, um, letting the audience know that on one of the upcoming episodes of Good Luck Charlie, which is a kids' show, there's going to be a lesbian couple that came on as friends of the, the family. Uh, we could talk about the Olympics and Putin's stance on homosexuality. We could talk about Uganda and their Anti-Homosexuality Act of 2014, which, uh, when it was first proposed late last year, uh, required death sentence for anyone who was gay, or lesbian, or transgender. Uh, they've since, due to pressure of some sort, I don't know whether it was religious or cultural or, or global or whatever, but they backed it down from death sentence to simply life in prison. So that's okay. You know, that's fine. If you're gay, lesbian, transgender, we'll just put you in prison for the rest of your life because of your sexuality. We know it's a topic that's hotly debated and contested in our world today. It's a topic that's become a whirlwind within cultural and political and religious circles. It's a topic that is rarely discussed in calm, emotionless, rational conversation between two people on opposite sides of the, the topic. And I think it's a topic that God cares about deeply. And not just because he's a holy God, and a righteous God. Because at the core of this topic are people. People for whom Jesus died on the cross. You see, yeah, there's, there's people that are pushing the gay agenda into the limelight. They're making it a political issue. I'm not here to address political issues today, or civic issues, or, or even cultural issues. I want to I explore and I want to explain how the church, how we as followers of Christ, should be responding to the issue of homosexuality in our world today. Because in the crosshairs 
of this issue are men and women and teenagers who are just genuinely trying to figure out what to do with the fact that they're attracted to someone of the same sex than the other sex. They're people who don't have any political agenda at all. They simply want to discover what to do and how to live with these same-sex attractions in our world today. And there's men, women, and teenagers all over our country today in churches who are trying to pursue an authentic relationship with God while facing reality is the church, the one place that should be offering grace and hope and protection is one of the worst places to be openly gay. Pew Research has shown that roughly 60% of Americans are fully supportive of homosexuality. Seven out of 10 Americans view gay marriage as inevitable, and seven out of 10 uh, Americans have a friend or a family member who's identified as gay, lesbian, or transgender. Personally, I have a vested interest in this conversation, Uh, not because I'm an American citizen, not because I'm a church leader, but because I have family members and close friends who are gay and lesbian. Uh, Hear my heart on this. I want to know how to walk alongside and love and encourage and support these people. I don't care about the politics of it. Don't talk to me about the politics. When we're done today, don't come to me and talk about politics, okay? Talk to me about how to love someone who's gay, lesbian, or transgender. So here's my promise to you. I will probably make most of you mad at me at some point. <laughs> Freddie's like, yes! I've been waiting for this day. Freddie, you're always, yeah, never mind. <laughs> for people on either side of the argument, I'm going to make you mad at me. For people who are, are fully accepting of the LGBT community, you're not going to like my position. For people who are, are fully accept or fully opposed to LGBT community, you're not going to like what I propose. And that's really the heart of today. How can two people who are on polar opposite sides of an issue, as hotly contested as homosexuality, still express love and grace? That's what I want to talk on today. Again, I could have chosen any topic but I want to talk on this one because it's very personal. So here's my position. This is, this is not Great Oak's position. Um, I've actually uh, encouraged our leadership to begin to explore a little deeper. How are we as a church today? Should we be responding and engaging in the, the lesbian, gay, and bisexual community? What does that look like for us as a church in Germantown Hills? So this is my position. I, I do not believe the Bible condemns same-sex attraction. I, I do believe, however, that it condemns gay sex even within the bounds of a lifelong monogamous relationship. This is not a a position that I landed on lightly because I have friends and family members who are on the other side of that, who would disagree passionately with me on that. But again, that's the whole point of today. We need to be able to find a way to express our beliefs to people that we disagree with, that would disagree with us, while still maintaining a spirit of love, compassion, and grace, rather than condemnation. And the church at large has done a horrible job on this topic of homosexuality. Most openly gay people do not feel welcome in churches in America today. This isn't to say that they're opposed to Jesus. They're simply afraid of us, his followers. They don't know how we're going to treat them. People are supposed to be known for love. These people don't know how we're going to respond to them. This isn't in my notes. Um, but I remember in the reading I was doing, there are parents all over churches today that they know their church's position on homosexuality, 
Because pastors have made it abundantly clear and been very passionately opposed to it. And they've just discovered that their child is gay. And they're suddenly scared for the first time ever of their own church. And they don't know what to do with that. Friends, this should not be this way. Over and over throughout the Bible, read that, that Jesus sought out the marginalized, the, the forgotten people of the world. He spent time with, with the people that the world ignored. He ate meals with, with people the religious elite shunned. I like the way Tim Keller put it. He says, people who were not like Jesus, liked Jesus. And wouldn't it be great if we could have people who were gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender who said, you know what, some of my closest friends are Christians who disagree completely with me on this topic. Because we display the love of Jesus. You see, in our world today, I've, I think those who are openly gay are some of the most overlooked, forgotten, and marginalized people in our churches and in our communities. The statistics are staggering on the amount of, of bullying and, and the suicide rates of those who are gay and lesbian and transgender. In, in, in student circles, roughly 70% of students who said they're openly gay experience bullying on a daily basis in their school. The, the suicide rates are just unbelievable. And that's not even to mention all the hate crimes that are done against them as adults and as students. I was reminded this past week by a friend of mine um, of Matthew Shepard, who in Wyoming uh, several years ago was beaten to death because he was gay. He was taken by two men out to the middle of nowhere, tied to a split rail fence, and beat to death by the handle of a pistol and left there to die. A jogger found him in the morning and actually mistook him for a scarecrow at first because he thought there's no way a human being could look like that. It was a hate crime because he was openly gay. How can we begin to build bridges with gay individuals rather than building walls? How can we be more like Jesus to these individuals? I don't have all the answers. Honestly, I don't even know all the questions to ask. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going into new territory for me and uh, myself in all of this. Uh, but I know that, thanks to the world we live in today, it is increasingly difficult to enter into an honest, heartfelt, genuine conversation with somebody on this topic. Grace seems to be lacking significantly from both the church and I think also grace from gay individuals because we've gotten it wrong and we've messed it up a lot as a church how we're to, to respond to people. And so I think we need to be recipients of grace as well as the church. But grace is lacking oftentimes. I mean, we, we see the protests, right? Westboro Baptist Church, which I think most of us would condemn their actions. Uh, but they, they go to funerals of gay individuals and, and hold up signs that say, God hates fags. And yet sometimes how different are we we may not use that word, but we throw something out on social media, we forward an article, we post it on Facebook, Twitter. It's like pulling a pin on a hand grenade and throwing it out there and then running and not worrying about what's going on. Rather than entering into honest dialogue with somebody over this issue. Over the last couple of weeks, I had the privilege of sitting down with two friends who were openly gay. I asked him just two questions. How do you reconcile your sexuality with what you see in Scripture? And then how have Christians responded to you, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly? And I told them up front, they knew where I stood on this position. And I said, I'm just going to take a, a posture of listening and learning. 
I'm not going to confront you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to tell you why you're wrong or anything like that. I'm not going to throw any scripture at you. I just want to listen. I want to learn. Teach me what you're going through as an openly gay individual. And i got to be honest. These were some of the most honest, heartfelt, and pain-filled conversations I've had in ministry in 15 years. And out of these conversations comes what I'm about to share with you, how we respond when our biblical worldview collides with our cultural worldview. So number one, we have to admit our biases. We have to admit our biases and our preconceived notions. You know, I grew up in uh, central Illinois, uh, farm kid, uh, mostly white, I mean, predominantly white. Uh, you know, it was, as somebody described it once, uh, Wonder Bread white with a few multigrain sprinkles, right? Let it sink in for a second. Um, and so I have to admit my bias about that. When I, when I come to an issue such as, as this, or such as multiculturalism, or, or ethnicity, anything like that, that I grew up in, a, in an all-white area. I grew up in an area in a home that homosexuality was not talked about very often. We knew what it was, and it was, it was spoken about in very hushed tones. Uh, you remember my mom when I was in high school, uh, she said, you know somebody who's gay, Chris, but she wouldn't tell me who, and that's the extent of the conversation. And I'm like, you just, what? You can't just leave it like that. You know, you can't do that to me. But that was the extent of the conversation we had on homosexuality in my home. Now, I would, uh, many of you know I wasn't raised in a Christian home. So my parents did the best they could, just raised me moral in a, a culture that, that was honestly not moral. My hometown is very racist, and, and on this topic of homosexuality, you knew exactly where they stand on it, because it was talked about all the time in very derogatory terms. And so as a result, I, I've got these biases that I've got to recognize in myself when I come to an issue such as homosexuality. Conversely, so does somebody who is raised in an urban environment, who's in their early 20s, who's surrounded by gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals. They also have biases when they bring that into the con- when they enter the conversation. And when we approach Scripture, uh, we have to be able to approach Scripture recognizing our biases because our biases affect our perspective on an issue and affect how we interpret Scripture. I'll talk about more of that here in a minute. I, I think we need to educate ourselves. You know, honestly, prior to this sermon preparation, prior to talking to these individuals, I had never really dove in to an opinion on the other side that was pro-gay. Everything I'd ever read, everything I'd ever, you know, looked at and supported was all pretty much anti-gay. And so obviously I'm skewed by that, that perspective, by that learning. And I realized that I wasn't being a, a person of integrity, that I wasn't investigating how the other side views this issue. And how they, they struggle with uh, this same-sex attraction and how they reconcile that. And so I, w- I was given a book uh, by one of my friends uh, that I spoke with. Uh, it was a book called Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from Gays versus Christian Debate. And then the, the author is uh, Justin Lee. He went on uh, to find the Gay Christian Network, which is, is not a TV sh- station. It's, it's a group of people who are willingly entering into this conversation from all different sides, all different angles, just to have an honest Christ-honoring conversations on this issue of homosexuality. Uh, Justin grew up in a, in a Christian home. He was a good, strong Christian kid. Uh, he, he believed that homosexuality was wrong. And then as he was in high school and going through late puberty, he discovered that he had attractions to men, not girls. That when guys would, would start talking about how their girlfriend made him feel, you know, in tide and all the tingling and stuff, and he's like, I don't have that with any girl, but I have that with this guy over here. And he, he struggled with that. 
Because as a, as a kid growing up in a Christian home, he, he felt like that was wrong and very sinful. And so this book is just an honest conversation that he puts out there to say, this is everything I went through uh, religiously, culturally, personally, as I explore this topic and, and finally accepted who I was. And I, I think it's a great book. I think it's one that, we, that you should read. I don't agree with everything in there. I'm, I'll preface that as well. I don't agree with everything in there. But then again, I don't agree with everything that most authors write. Uh, not 100% entirely, right? And so there's going to be things in there that you're going to read, and you're going to be like, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm the same way. Uh, but in this book, I learned, and in my research, that, that even within the gay community, there's, there's groups that look at it from two different sides, and they call it side A and side B. Side A is uh, gay Christians who believe that the Bible does not condemn gay sex in the context of a monogamous, lifelong relationship. Justin Lee would fall into that category. And yet, one of his big things with his organization is that we also have to accept and allow Side B Christians into our network and into our organization. Because if we don't, we're, we're doing the exact opposite of what we're saying we're doing. And he said, Side B Christians are, are gay Christians who believe that the Bible does condemn gay sex, but not same-sex attractions. Therefore, a gay Christian should remain celibate. And in, where I landed on this at this point is side B. I, I believe that, that same-sex attraction is not a sin. And I believe that because I'm attracted to women who are not my wife. Every man in here, if we're honest, uh, I'm going to get you all in trouble when you go home later uh, because your wife's going to like, who is it? Um, <laughs> right? Karen's been there. She's done that. Um, but I'm attracted to women who are not my wife. That's not a sin. It's not a sin to recognize that a woman is beautiful. It's a sin when I begin to act on those, either physically or mentally, as Jesus raised the bar for us. He says, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. And so I don't think having a same-sex attraction is a sin, but I think from my study of Scripture, I've landed on side B, that I believe that, that God does not condone gay sex. Now, in this process of educating yourself as well, you have to understand terminology. And this is part of the conversation I had with these two individuals. Help me understand the right words to use, the right, right terminology. Because I, I think, you know, if you've never had that conversation with a gay individual, some of the terminology you're using is probably offensive, even though you think it's not. Uh, for example, uh, hate the sin but love the sinner. That's great when you're not the sinner and you're saying it to somebody, Right? But put yourself in their shoes. Like, okay, I get that you don't agree with my perspective on this, but you just labeled me a sinner. And yeah, we're all sinners, but if you've got somebody who doesn't know that or doesn't understand that or doesn't understand the context of it and doesn't understand the love of great and grace of Jesus and what he did for us, that can become an extremely contentious statement. I love what Tony Campolo said. He, goes, you know, he was a Southern Baptist preacher. He says, you know, Jesus said, love the sinner and hate your own sin. That was good for me to read. So we need to educate ourselves. We need to interpret Scripture with integrity. Uh, we cannot make Scripture say what we want it to say. Uh, both sides of the issue. We have to interpret Scripture in, with integrity and in context. And uh, In theological terms, in seminary, we use these words exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is getting out of Scripture what the original authors intended eisegesis is reading into it what we wanted to say. And all, you know, from all my research, I think both sides are guilty of eisegesis at some point. 
We all look at Scripture and make it say what we want it to say. And uh, these are some of the, the more commonly used verses uh, that you'll have in this conversation. So I want you to go home and I want you to study them. I want you to look at them in context. Uh, do you know what many in the gay community call these verses? Clobber verses. Because they've been used to clobber their heads over and over and over and over again. Let me just tell you that anybody who's grown up in the church who suddenly discovers they have same-sex attractions, they know these verses. They've wrestled with them. They've studied them. The last thing they need you to do is to lob it out like a hand grenade at them and then back away and think you've done your civic duty as a Christian. We, we can use Scripture in really ugly and ignorant ways. But as I've studied these Scriptures, my perspective on some of these Scriptures, I, I didn't fully understand context. When I began to see it from the other side, the other angle, and, and really honestly stopped reading into it what I wanted to say and read it in, in context, I began to discover the, some of these scriptures changed. Some did not, but some did. And on Wednesday morning, I'm taking my guys through this. We started this last week, and we, we barely got through the first two in an hour. Uh, so we're continuing on next week, and I don't have time to dive into all of them today. But I think we need to interpret scripture with integrity, recognizing our bias and not having it say what we want it to say. I think we need to take the relational risk of having a conversation with somebody who's openly gay. And just hearing from them, taking a, a posture of listening and learning. As I said, I sat down with two individuals. One's a 20-year-old young man who uh, has been a part of my youth ministry here at Great Oaks. Another is a 40-year-old woman that I've been friends with for over 20 years. She was a bridesmaid in our wedding. Uh, both have come out as gay. And I sat down with them and I asked them just those two questions. How, how have you reconciled your sexuality with what you read in Scripture? And, and uh, the 20-year-old, he said, you know, honestly, Chris, there's times I still struggle. I, I don't know. He said, there's times where I doubt. He said, but I can't deny the, the attraction I have to my boyfriend. He said, I'm not going to do that. I can't deny that. And I asked, you know, how has the church responded to you? And he said, you know, some people, some Christians have, have responded really well. They've extended love and grace, even if they disagree with me. And, and he cited some people here at Great Oaks as examples. But he said, I've also had an elderly couple, Christian couple at another church, who told me that, that, if I'm going, that because I'm gay, I'm going to hell, and that if I step foot in their church, that's going to burn down on top of my head. This young man who's been beat up in his school by his peers and in the process was called a faggot. So that word obviously resonates very deeply painful for him. He had things written on his locker and put in his locker from fellow students. It was incredibly painful for him how Christians have responded. I talked to this 40-year-old woman that I said has been a friend of mine for about 20 years she was a bridesmaid in our wedding. I asked her the same questions. How do you reconcile? And she goes, honestly, Chris, I don't see the Bible addressing my situation. She's in a, a monogamous, lifelong relationship now. And she goes, I don't see the Bible addressing my situation. And, and that was the first time I'd ever heard that position, uh, that the Bible doesn't address monogamous, lifelong relationships uh, between gay and lesbian couples. And I had to, like, what do I do with that? I obviously go to scripture. I'm studying scripture. And, but I've never seen, I've never heard that perspective before. And so it forced me to, to dig deeper into understanding this whole issue. And I asked her, 
how have Christians responded to the good, the bad, and the ugly? She broke down and cried. And I asked her, I'm like, why, why the tears? She said, Chris, you're the, the first person who's known me for longer than 10 years, who knew me before I was gay, before I came out as gay, who was called to ask how I'm doing, just to see how I'm doing as a human being. How's my life? How are my kids? And I, I felt convicted because I called her because I had a sermon to deliver. I've been that guy that for 10 years I've known she's gay, and I've never once pursued a conversation with her. And I had to repent of that and ask for forgiveness from that. And I'm, I'm hoping that this conversation that we've already started will continue and will rebuild and restore this friendship that we've had in the past. She's had lots of Christians throw the clobber verses at her, lots of friends that, that she went to high school with who just didn't know what else to say, so they launched some verses at her and an article about why you shouldn't be gay and then run and never actually talk to her about it. But nobody has actually sat down. And she can't find a church where she's at. She's in a small town. The nearest church that would be open to having a gay couple in their church is over an hour away. And so they, they, they're very strong Christians. And they have nowhere to go to be in a faith community that will help them hear Scripture and grow in their faith. It's incredibly painful for how Christians and how churches have responded. Which leads me to my last point. Always show love and grace. Even if you disagree with somebody on this issue or any other issue, if you disagree with somebody, you can disagree. Our world tells you you can't, but you can. It's all in how you disagree with them. If you demonstrate love and grace and a, a posture of listening and learning, and, and the other person does as well, you can, you can have incredible conversations over hotly contested topics such as homosexuality. I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 13. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, and he, he starts to lift off some of the big ten, right? You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And then he adds this phrase in there, and we might need to underline this phrase and explore it a little bit. And any other commandment. So he says, take the big ten, take whatever else, any other commandment that the church has developed, that, that we see in scripture that says, uh, you know, you shall or you shall not. And he says, any other commandment. It's all summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I love this phrase. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. We need to underline that in our Bibles. We need to italicize it. We need to memorize that verse. That even if we disagree, that we still do no wrong. And church, I get it. I understand it. At what point does love and grace turn into acceptance and full condoning of lifestyle? And I don't know. I, don't, I honestly don't know. I don't have the answer to that question. And, and we're correct, and I've used this for years. We're correct when we say that Jesus said to the adulterous woman, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. He, he extended love and grace and called sin, sin at the same time. And here's what I know, though. I'm not Jesus. Neither are you. And I don't really know how to do that very well. I think I mess it up pretty often. 
And that's where grace comes into play. Yeah, I, I know. Scripture calls us to, to hold our brothers and sisters accountable for sin. We read that in many places in Scripture. And yet, over and over and over, accompanied with that, is to look at your own sin first, as Tony Campolo pointed out. And then when you confront, to do it with gentleness, patience, love. I think we mess that up a lot as a church in America today. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for Great Oaks? What does that mean for the broader church in the U.S.? It means we've got a lot to talk about because we've got a lot of room for improvement. It means we need to engage in honest dialogue with people on both sides of the issue. It means that we need to become known more for loving people like Jesus did than giving blanket condemnation to a group of people who are desperately seeking faith communities in which they can grow spiritually. I've thrown it out to, to the leadership and the pastors of Great Oaks because we've always, you know, you've heard Bill say homosexuality is a sin, but as I've studied, as I've learned and had these conversations, what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about same-sex attractions or actually gay sex? Are we talking about a couple that's in a monogamous, lifelong relationship? These are questions that I don't know that as a church we've explored the theological underpinnings of and, and the practical implications of that. From a practical standpoint, a question I threw out, uh, if an openly gay but celibate individual came to our church, two things, would they feel welcome, and would they be allowed to be a leader or teacher in our church? I don't know the answers to those questions. I'm not going to provide an answer today because that's a leadership-level conversation that we have yet to have. But I've discovered that this, among many other questions that I don't even know yet we need to ask, are questions that we need to explore. My hope for Great Oaks, wherever we land on all of this, my hope for Great Oaks is that if a gay or lesbian, bisexual, transgender individual walks into our church, that they would experience open arms, love, grace, and not condemnation. Because if we're going to condemn then we better hold a mirror up to ourselves first. Let me pray. Chris, how can any of us in the world make a difference? Is the Bible right or wrong? It says, it's, this is what we got to do. This is what we got to do. I'm no perfect guy. I struggle with that. My boy's homosexual. I brought him to church every Sunday. You know? And uh, I mean, how can we even tell the world about Jesus if the Bible's wrong? You know? Absolutely. I don't think the Bible is wrong, but I think what we've done is we've used it as a weapon against people, and we need to invite people that we disagree with, gay, lesbian, Islamic, Buddhist, atheist, whatever, people who would oppose capital punishment, people who would do any of that. We need to invite them into relationships with us to explore Scripture together, because when we dive into Scripture in an honest way with people that we're trying to love on, we allow Scripture to change them. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of our sin. It's not the church that's supposed to point out that sin. We're, we're to help hold accountable. I agree. And I have family that, that identify as bi- bisexual in the past. And I'll be the first one to say that in the conversation, 
I asked her, I said, do you call yourself a Christian? And she said, yeah. And I went, well, since you said that, here it comes. And I used this as a weapon against her. And that relationship has been tainted for over 10 years now. And we're just now beginning to restore that relationship. And so I'm, Dave, I'm with you. What do we do with that? What do we do with, with our friends who are gay and lesbian? What do we do with our, our friends who are Islamic? My mom, what do we do with her? At, at this point, based on my beliefs and what I believe the Bible teaches is true, my mom is going to spend eternity in hell. And you better believe that breaks my heart. But I can't just tell her she's wrong over and over. She's not going to listen. I need to invite her into conversation over this. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in that tension with you, Dave. I understand it. Sin is sin. Gospel calls us to recognize that sin is sin. And we live in a world that, that culture will tell us you can't call anything sin. Nothing that anybody does is wrong. To be fully accepting of everybody and everything, and yet we, we can't. Because we've said as followers of Christ that we're going to dive into this book and we're going to let this book change me. When I was in college, I got drunk every weekend. And I discovered that this book says you're not supposed to get drunk. Once I discovered that, I never got drunk again. I, I was addicted to pornography for the first three years of my marriage. I confessed to my wife about this addiction. The whole time, I, I knew it was wrong. I knew what the Bible taught about it. And yet I embraced it completely. And it wasn't until I let the Holy Spirit overwhelm me one day and convict me of my sin. I knew it was wrong. Anybody else I talked to would have told me it was wrong. I knew the scriptures. I knew Jesus' words. That every time I looked at somebody on the computer, the TV, or began to mentally undress them in our community, that I was sinning. I was committing adultery. I was violating my, my covenant relationship with my wife. And it wasn't until I truly surrendered to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I entered into accountability relationships with a couple guys. I began to put roadblocks in the way for pornography to have its access into my life. That it began to change. I, I have a really hard time with rich people. I tend to judge wealthy people before I even know you. Because I grew up poor. I grew up state-funded lunch program going to Goodwill, not because it was cool or fashionable, because it's what we could afford as a family. That's the struggle I have today. When I see somebody driving a BMW or Mercedes, my first thought, and just being honest, is not the most God-honoring. I'm like, wow, that guy's a jerk. Just because they're driving a nice car. I don't know anything about this person. And God is working in me with that to say, Chris, you don't even know that person. How can you stand in judgment of them? We, we always talk at Great Oaks, and I know, I know, Dave, you agree with this. Everybody else here, I think you do as well. We all talk about we have next steps in our faith journey. Next steps to grow closer to God, and for, for some of you, it's to enter into a friendship with a gay or lesbian individual. For some of you, it's to, to go to a brother or sister in Christ that's in this room and to ask for forgiveness for what you've been doing to them and the way you've been treating them for years. For others, it's to begin to follow God's prompting on what to do with your life and how you're supposed to spend your time and your money. We all have a next step. 
We're all called to pursue that next step with authenticity, with compassion, with biblical integrity. And at times that gets really, really messy. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't have any coworkers that are Islamic. Surprise, surprise, right? You work for a Christian church. <laughs> Many of you do. How do you engage in a meaningful friendship and a relationship with them to introduce them to Jesus? You know, I discovered in the class that we did on Islam was that you introduced scripture to them. Because Muslims believe in the Old Testament, they just believe it's been corrupted. They believe the New Testament, they just believe it's been corrupted. And, and so, a little trick of the trade, if you will, they said, well, what part of the New Testament's corrupted? And most people who are Muslim can't answer that question. And you're like, well, hey, why don't we actually read it together and, and discover and see which part's corrupted? And time and time again, this guy that's taught this class, he said, when I take a Muslim individual through the New Testament, they're overwhelmed at what they read. And so I think we need to lovingly invite people into study of Scripture. Because Scripture is what's changed me more than anything else. Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit. So I appreciate your question. I really do. Because I wrestle with it. I live in that tension every day. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakcc.org.